A couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation uh, with, with my neighbor who has been working at home lately because of the coronavirus, and I just casually asked him how he was doing, how, how work was going as he's been working from home, and he told me that things have been going well for him and that he told me about the successes that he was happening, that were happening for him in, in his place of work, and then he just kindly asked me how things were going with me. And it was really tempting in that moment just to, you know, politely say everything's fine and, and move on with my day. But I decided to just let him into my heart a little bit, and I just told him that my heart was grieved. Uh, my heart was grieved for all that had been happening in our country, from the fallout of the coronavirus to the murder of George Floyd to the riots that resulted from that to the deaths of others that came in the midst of the riots and part of the fallout from the murder of George Floyd, my heart was grieved. And, and even though I was giving my neighbor a window into my heart of what was going on with me in that moment, the truth is that I know my heart is grieved by, by many things that have happened throughout the world. For instance, last fall, I was able to go to Israel, and while I was in Israel, I was able to visit the uh, Holocaust Museum that they have there, which pays tribute to the six million Jews who lost their lives in the Holocaust. And as horrible as that is, uh, they have one particular exhibit there which pays tribute to the one and a half million children who lost their lives in the Holocaust. And the reason they lost their lives, these one and a half million children, is just simply because they were Jewish, because of their ethnicity. And as I went through that exhibit, by the time I came out of it, my, my heart was just, I was just moved to tears because of the, the awfulness of it and probably because I have two young girls as well. And so just thinking about uh, the unimaginable horror of all that was just, it was just kind of emotionally overwhelming. And so, you know, there's other things that I could go on about, about things that have grieved my heart about things that have happened in, in world history. But the point of it is, is that there are things that you and I have observed and experienced in our world, perhaps in your own life, where you get to a place and you think to yourself, how did we come to this? How did we get here? How did this happen? How could this happen? And in the midst of the confusion, we need to know where to go for answers. We need to be reminded of what is true. And so we need to go to the source of truth, to the Word of God, to see what He says and be guided by it. In Psalm 36, the passage we're going to be looking at today, King David explains why evil exists. And he contrasts the way of the wicked with the way of righteousness. And basically, the way of the wicked is life without the fear of God, while the way of righteousness is life with the fear of God. And so today, we want to look at what God's Word has to say about living life with the fear of God and living life without the fear of God. So living life without the fear of God and living life with the fear of God. So if you will, open up your, your Bibles to Psalm 36, and let's read 
verse 1 together. And I'm reading from the, the ESV today, so there might be a couple differences in the, in the translation between what I'm reading and what you're reading. But here's how the ESV translates verse 1. It says this, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, the first part of this uh, psalm right there is pretty confusing, and if you go and look it up in the Hebrew and you're able to unpack it, it gets even more confusing because of the construction of the Hebrew. But basically, the main idea here that David is communicating is that, and, and he's been given this special revelation here by God, is he sees all that is going on in the world, he sees all that's going on in the world, all the problems, and he's just appalled by it. He sees all the sinful acts of the wicked going on around him and explains why such evil and sin and wickedness exists. And it's because, right there in verse 1, it's because people do not fear God. It says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Another way to put it is, uh, in the Hebrew, is that the fear of God is not in front of their eyes. And so what that means is that the wicked do not look to God for anything. They do not acknowledge him. He's basically an afterthought. Instead of looking to him, of keeping him in front of them, they remove the place where God should be, which is at the forefront of their life, and, and they place him in the rearview mirror behind them, out of their sight. And so they have no regard for the, the things of God, his values, or his teaching. They reject his laws. They think of it like this. They're, well, they're outdated. They just don't work. They're not sufficient. They don't give me what I want when I want it. And so the wicked do not love God. They do not praise him. They do not think God is good. They, they might be atheistic individuals. They might be people that... Um, Worship many gods, they might be idolatrous, but the, the point is, is they reject God and they reject his ways. They're like what the Apostle Paul writes about in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, where he talks about how people exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. This is life without the fear of God. And then later on, Paul writes in the book of Romans, and, and by the time you get to Romans chapter 3, he compiles this long list of what it looks like for all people to live under the domain of sin. And it, when you read it, it's like he's just cutting and pasting Old Testament passages and, and, and creating this, this long list of, of, of sin. And as he puts down all these Old Testament passages that point to the reality of people living under the domain of sin, he actually puts Psalm 36.1 as the very last verse. It's like it's his bottom line point of why evil exists in the world. It's his bottom line summary point of why evil exists in the world. And it's the same point David is making here. The reason sin exists in the world, the reason for wickedness in the world is because people do not have the fear of God before their eyes. And you might be tempted to think that by David using the term wicked here, 
And the way I've been talking about it, he, he's just only talking about the worst of the worst sinners. But the fact is, all of us have been born, and all of us are born into sin because it's part of our, our nature. We don't start out in life living with the fear of God. We have a natural inclination to drift away from God, to go and seek our own way. So this is life without the fear of God. And David goes on to write about what a life without the fear of God looks like in a little more detail. And let's read the uh, verses 2 to 4 together. For, For he, the wicked, flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. And so these verses describe what life without the fear of God looks like. And some will point out that how these verses are laid out is showing a a progression of of sin going from bad to worse. And, And there are basically, I look at these verses here as basically characteristics of the wicked, and there, there's four that David makes mention of. And the first one is, is that life without the fear of God involves pride. And where sin begins is in the pride of the human heart. It begins in the human heart with this sense of pride, which says, hey, I, I, I'm good. I can handle life on my own. I, I don't need God. And by the way, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a bad person. Some might even say, well, I've, I've heard about God, and, and maybe I should think more about him, but uh, I, I want to do whatever I want to do right now, and I'll think about you know, the God question or the Jesus question later. I, right now, I just want to have my fun. Get back to me, right? And so the, the message of these voices essentially is saying, I don't need God, I'm good on my own. And so what ends up happening is that you approve of you. And there is no real serious thought given to what God thinks and whatever he would approve of not of what you're doing. Because what ends up happening is the God filter is replaced by the me filter. And the passage here is communicating that the wicked think highly of themselves. In other words, there's an arrogance about them. They think they won't get caught. They think they can keep on doing what they're doing, because after all, who's going to know? They live with an attitude that God doesn't see, and he's not going to require me to give an account someday. It's just the farthest thing uh, from their mind. Or maybe they think, you know, if he doesn't exist, how can he hold me accountable? They just remove the whole concept of who God is and, and what he is like and what he does. Now, when I was a senior in high school... Uh, I had a Bible teacher. Uh, this is my senior year of high school. I went to a, a Christian high school, and so we had Bible classes at the high school that I was going to. And I don't know why I remember this verse, and it, it has stuck with me, but it's Galatians 6, 7. And this Bible teacher used to say to us, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. 
And so you see, our Bible teacher knew how high school students tended to think. And, and that is the thought that students tend to think with is that they're invincible, right? Like nothing bad's going to happen to me. I'm young. I can do whatever I want without consequence. But the thinking that you can do whatever you want without consequence is really just self-deception. And to be honest, even though I'm talking about high school students, a lot of us as adults live that way as well. And so the Bible warns us not to deceive ourselves. God knows everything we do, and he warns us that we will reap the consequences of our choices. Well, the wicked are not only prideful and think they can get away with living however they want to live, but the words out of their mouths are destructive. And so here's the second point. A life without the fear of God is full of troublesome words. Their words bring trouble. The wicked's words tear down. They do not build up. Because they do not fear God, they don't offer sound advice or speak truth. Their words create trouble, and they deceive. And in our culture today, because our culture largely does not fear God, we have so much deception. Deception in deceiving someone into getting them to believe something that is not true. That is what deception is. It is getting someone to believe something that is not true. And usually a person does this to get some kind of an advantage over another person. So deception involves this intentionality to deceive others. And this kind of deception is happening all over our culture today. It's happening in our news media. It's happening with our politicians. It's happening with our educators. It's, it's happening with the life of the unborn. And we have even seen deception from supposedly godly teachers and, and leaders who claim they have some kind of inside scoop on what the Bible has to say about certain things. But really, the, the words of God are being uh, twisted, and they're, they're teaching false doctrine. They're teaching things that are actually not true. And I could go on and on and get into more details on, on points like that, but I think, I think you get the point. Life without the fear of God is full of troublesome words. Thirdly, a life without the fear of God leads to troublesome actions. David goes on to say that the wicked's words impact their actions. He has ceased to act wisely and do good, is what David writes here. And I think the ceasing to act wisely is related to not having the fear of God because the Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So because the wicked have no fear of God, they're incapable of acting wisely. Because they're incapable of acting wisely, the wicked ceases to do good as well. They become so corrupted, they no longer do good. So their actions are just as bad as their words. They do not do the good that they ought to do they, as they do not seek the one who defines what is good. You see, God is the objective source of truth, and therefore, he defines morality. If everyone is allowed to be relativistic, 
in their beliefs, if people do not look to the one who is true, and you can just believe whatever truth you think is true, and it's just as valuable to you as it is to everybody else, pretty soon there is no agreed-upon standard of truth. And what you get is chaos. The fourth point, and hopefully you can hear as we've gone through here, this progression of how things go from bad to worse. But here's the worst of it. The fourth point on this is that a life without the fear of God embraces evil. Life without the fear of God embraces evil. Once the wicked stop doing good, they are set on a wayward course, so much so that they plot trouble while they are on their bed. It's, in other words, it's all that they think about. It's what keeps them up at night, and it's really the exact opposite of what God talks about in Psalm 1-2 about how people should live or how the righteous do live, which is that they meditate on God's law day and night. Instead of plotting the course of their lives through God's word, the wicked plot and scheme to get what they want, even if it brings harm to others. And so once the wicked commits to this kind of path, this way of living, they don't reject evil. Because if they had the fear of the Lord, if they had the fear of the Lord, they would hate evil. That's what Proverbs 8.13 says. It says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. But instead of embracing the good, instead of embracing the truth about God, the wicked reject it, and they participate in evil. And why? Why do they participate in evil? Well, I think Jesus provides the answer for us in John 3, verse 19. He says, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying truth is available. The light of God is available. His salvation is made available to bring change to the human heart, to clean it up, but the heart's affections are misaligned. As Pastor Mike mentioned just a few weeks ago, the problem, or at the heart of the problem, is the problem of the heart. And so this is life without the fear of God. Living without the fear of God is, we need to remember, this is the place we all start out in, in life. It begins with pride in the human heart, a natural inclination to go our own way, which then, if we just keep going our own way, leads us down uh, a path of troublesome words and actions, all the way onto a path where we just continually and fully embrace evil. So that's the bad news. Despite the fact that the wicked carry on as, as they do, despite that they do these things, it, it doesn't change who God is. Despite what the wicked do, God is God. And in the next section of this psalm, which David is writing, inspired by God, David shows us what life with the fear of God looks like. And life with the fear of God is the way of the righteous. And, and because 
we don't naturally start out fearing the Lord, as we've already made mention of. We, we naturally don't start out fearing the Lord. This means we have to be told what it means to fear the Lord. We need to be told by Him what it means to fear the Lord. And, and we need to know what that looks like. And so, what does it mean to fear God? And I, I think that there are two aspects to the fear of God. And I think one is one that we're all pretty familiar with, which has this uh, negative view of God. And what I mean by that is, I think being God is, is uh, the negative view about the fear of God is the view that um, you're fearful of what God will do to you. And so you think about uh, the fear of God's discipline in your life, the fear of God's wrath, the fear of God's uh, judgments. And so we can become fearful of what he will do to us and, and fearful of these things. And, and I don't want to say that that's a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It, it can be a good thing because even negative fear can be used for a positive good for us. But the positive view of the fear of God has this idea of reverence, have this, has this idea of awe and respect and wonder, and that's all, that's all fine and good, but I think we actually need to think of that positive view, taking it a, a step even further. I think it, it's more than those things. I think it's uh, one of the best descriptions on it, I think, is Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13, which says this. This is Moses writing to, to the people of Israel, and he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with, with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. And then he says later in this uh, chapter, in verse 20, he says, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. So what is Moses telling us here from, from Deuteronomy as he speaks to Israelites as it relates to fearing God? Well, it means that to fear God is to follow him. It's to be wholly devoted to him. It's to love him with everything you have. It's to obey him. It's to stay close to him. It's to worship him alone. In short, it's acknowledging that, that God, you're, it's, it's basically acknowledging God is God, and you're giving praise and worship to him for who he is and giving glory to him. And so again, despite what the wicked do, God is God, and he is worthy of glory, and that is what David does here in these next few verses, is he praises God, worships God, and gives him the glory that he is due as he speaks to four particular attributes of God. It's not all the attributes of God, but he gives four particular attributes of God here that he praises him for. So uh, let's look at verses uh, five and six together. It says this in verse five. David writes, "'Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds.'" Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. And so life with the fear of God means that you acknowledge who God is 
You acknowledge that God is God and that he is worthy to be praised. And David acknowledges right here who God is and what God is like. And, and again, he lists four attributes right here. And the, the first one that he lists is God's steadfast love. And this type of love in, in the Hebrew really is relating to God's covenant love, which is God's consistent, steadfast, persistent love, persevering kind of love to his people. And despite people turning their backs on God, he continues to go after people to show them who he is, to demonstrate his love to them. That, that's all what the steadfast love of God is, is communicating. That's the kind of love it is. And it doesn't mean that God won't discipline those he loves. He will do that. But his steadfast love means he will just keep pursuing you, that he keeps showing his love for you. So there's an element of mercy and grace that is a part of God's steadfast love. Some translations put it his loving, his loving kindness. And I love how David puts this idea, this truth about God's steadfast love as he, he puts it in this poetic language of God's love being vast, right? Because it extends to the heavens. We cannot contain it. In our verse of the month, Exodus 34, 6, it says that God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. So God not only abounds in steadfast love, but he abounds in faithfulness. And that takes us to the, to the second point that David acknowledges uh, another truth about who God is, and that's the fact that God is faithful. And what he means by this here is that God is faithful and true to his word. He is faithful to his promises. All of his promises come true. They are never broken. And that's the sobering passages as well as the joyful passages and promises. So the sobering promises as well as the joyful promises, they all come true. And then the last couple ones is that David acknowledges that God is righteous and that God is just. And, and the two are, are closely tied together. It is the righteousness of God that allows him to carry out his judgments. Even though we see miscarriages of justice in our world, God never gets it wrong because he is morally pure. There is no darkness in him. There's no hint of sin. God does the good all the time. And those who get away with injustices here, will not get away with those when they stand before God. God promises to uphold his justice. It will not be violated. So life with the fear of God not only means you acknowledge all of who God is, that God is God, but you also receive the blessings of knowing him. David writes in the next three verses, uh, about these blessings of living with the fear of God. And so let's read verses 7 to 9 here. And David writes here in verse 7, he says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. 
For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Notice again, David mentions uh, the steadfast love of God. And, And this time he calls it precious. Or in some translations it might say priceless. But the point is, is it's of extreme value. The most precious demonstration of the love of God to people was sending Jesus. Who, Jesus, who is the precious, spotless Lamb of God sent to die on the cross for your sins. In 1 John 4.10 it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so this demonstration of God's love is made available to all people. It's made available to people in high positions. It's made available to people in low positions. And to those who acknowledge their sins before God and and receive Jesus and follow him will find that he is a refuge. He's a refuge for the trials of your life right now, and he's a refuge for your eternity as he saves you from the wrath of God. So Jesus can be a refuge both for you now and your eternity. So living with the fear of God brings the blessing of having God as your refuge. In verse 8 there, David describes that those who put their trust in God for their refuge will find satisfaction in him. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So the point is, is his goodness is abundant and that it's never ending. So living with the fear of of God brings the blessing of finding our satisfaction in him. And David goes on to declare that God himself is the fountain of life, and is the source of light. This language that David uses shows God as the giver of eternal life. He is the source and the giver of eternal life. And he has made that available to people through Jesus, as ultimately Jesus fulfills this verse here in in verse 9. In John 1, 4, John wrote this about Jesus. It says, in him, in other words, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. So Jesus possesses life within himself and is the giver of life as he has equality with God. And so when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, he spoke to her as being that fountain of life, the fountain of eternal life. When he said to her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So those verses show Jesus as the fountain of life, of of his eternal life that he gives. But he's also the source of light. Jesus said this about himself in John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
So Jesus is the light. He is the source of salvation. He, he is the source of hope. He is the source of truth, the one who came to rescue you out of darkness into marvelous light. And in eternity, in heaven, Jesus is the physical source of light. There will be no physical sources of light in heaven, no sun, moon, stars. The only physical source of light in heaven is Jesus himself. That's what the book of Revelation promises. In Revelation 21-23, the, the city has no need. That's the new Jerusalem in, in heaven. Has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. So Jesus is the way to eternal life, to restored fellowship between God and man. So Living with the fear of God brings the blessings of eternal life found in Jesus. And then the last part of this psalm shows David making a, a prayer request. He requests that God continue to be favorable to the righteous, to those who fear God. But he also prays that God would protect him from those who do not fear God. Let's read the, the the last three verses there, David says this. He says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. I love that David asks for protection and deliverance here from prideful people. But what I also love is that he's praying his own heart would not be led astray by wicked people. And this should be a warning to us, to those of us who fear God and follow him, that we need to keep a close watch on our hearts because the heart can be deceived. In, in Jeremiah 17 and 9, it says, the heart is desperately wicked, who can understand it? And so the capacity to wander away and commit acts of sin and, and evil is, is present and something that any of us can, can fall into. We are all prone to wander from God if, if we're not careful. And David knows <clears throat> where the righteous, or excuse me, David knows where the wicked will end up. And it's in a place of judgment that, that God appoints for them, which ultimately uh, is hell. And David says that these wicked lie fallen, that they're unable to rise. And it shows that the wicked, those who do not fear God, they are condemned forever. The Bible says in the, in the book of Revelation that, that everyone is going to have to stand before God someday and, and give an account of their lives to him. And for those who did not fear him, for those who did not put their trust in Jesus, they'll have to face what is called the second death, which is a reference to a life of eternity in hell. And the, the second death means that you continue to live a life in isolation, separated for God separated from God for eternity, living in a place of physical and emotional anguish. Instead of uh, the source of light in heaven being glorious and wonderful, there, there is no 
light at all in, in hell. It's all darkness. It's all isolation. It's all pain and suffering physically and emotionally. And so it's, you, you don't get any kind of life. You get the, the consequences of death, and they last forever. So David concludes his psalm with, with asking for God's continued blessing on those who fear God and pronounces condemnation to those who do not live with the fear of God. So how does one come to a place of knowing and having the fear of God? And just one more uh, verse for you here from Revelation 14.7 says this, and he, this is an angel speaking, and he said with a loud voice, fear God, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and, and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. So to fear God here, to have the fear of God here from what this is speaking in Revelation involves repentance from sin. This is where the fear of God begins. It begins with a turning to him and genuinely seeking him for the forgiveness of your sins. And the fear of God is about giving him the glory that he is due. Why? Because he's the creator. He's real. He's perfectly holy, righteous, and loving, and because his judgment is coming. So the fear of God is recognizing that God is God and you are lost without him. And once you recognize your loss, you need to believe in the one who has the light, the source of salvation himself, believe in Jesus, the one who provides the way out of your darkness, and you follow him. You follow his light as he is the light. And then you make a commitment with your life. You make a commitment to love him with your life, to obey him with your life, and to serve him with your life. And so as as Pastor Mike likes to say when he concludes his messages, what's the so what? Well, the so what is, which fear are you living with? Are you living with the fear of God, or are you living life without the fear of God? And if you're living life without the fear of God, uh, I pray that you would take steps today to have the fear of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for... Um, just the truth of your word. Thank you for your servant, David, who uh, you inspired to write these words for us today. And Lord, um, may we just live with the right kind of fear in, in our lives. For those of us who would say we have the fear of God, may we keep fearing you. May we keep pursuing you. May we keep loving you with, with all that we have. May we serve you, obey you, uh, follow your truth, look to you for our source of truth. And may we hate evil. May we reject evil. May we live with that posture. And, and for those of us who might be hearing who wonder, I'm not sure if I have the fear of God, Lord, I just pray that um, they would see the truth and the reality of who you are. And, and want to follow you, that they would see that you are good and worthy to be followed and that you um, can save them. You're the only one who can save them. 
So I just pray, Lord, that people would make a decision for you, uh, confess you today, confess their sins to you, and, and make a decision to, to commit to following you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.